looking to learn more on how to build wealth through real estate? You're in the right place. Welcome to the Make Money Make Sense podcast with Dante Belmonte. Each episode, we have the privilege to bring you a professional in the real estate world. One that will help you become a top investor, whether that's a passive role or managing the day-to-day. Let's jump right in. All right, guys, welcome back to another episode of Make Money, Make Sense. I'm your host, Dante Vellante, joined with me by my co-host, DJ Smith. DJ, how are you doing today? Awesome. Awesome. Great to be with everyone. Yes. Thank you for coming in. Uh, so we just recorded the episode with Mike Wagner. I mean, what a cool guy. He was just really fun, easy to chat with. We're talking about self-storage. It's not about quantity. It's about quality with this guy. So he hasn't done a lot of deals, but he's done some deals of massive profit, we'll say. Uh, I mean, DJ, what do you think of that? Yeah, even if you're not into self-storage, you want to listen to this whole episode because his perspective on being a real estate investor uh, is very unique and it, it's just excellent. It's very eye-opening. I, I took a lot from this podcast, so definitely stay tuned. This is a great one. Yeah, this is. This is really good. I mean, we, we've had, I think, two or three other people on the show throughout the year doing self-storage, but this one's probably one of my favorite ones. You know, Mike's just, he's a very personal person. So, uh, you know, thanks guys for swinging into the show and enjoy the episode. All right. Welcome back guys to another episode of Make Money Makes Sense in Real Estate. I'm your host, Dante Belmonte. This week we are joined by my co-host, DJ Smith, and our wonderful guest, Mike Wagner. Uh, Mike, would you like to go ahead and introduce yourself to the show? Well, yeah, absolutely. Uh, Dante, DJ, I appreciate you guys having me on. Uh, I am first and foremost, a husband and father. I've got three kids, seven, five, and one. Um, and we, we live what I like to describe as a pretty awesome life. We explore the country six months out of the year, living in our, our camper. Um, and, and the way that we're able to do that is by investing in self-storage. I've been doing it for about 10 years now. And, uh, my wife loves when I show up, show up on podcasts like this because I, I talk your listeners' ears off rather than hers about the latest and most exciting things in the world of stores. So I wanted to extend her thanks to you guys. Awesome. Yeah. No, thank you so much for coming on the show. I, I, DJ and I, we both love self-storage. We do multifamily, but we've actually put some offers in on self-storage facilities. It's always been something I really take an interest in. It's not what we focus on at all. Um, but, you know, I've done a lot of research, read some books, whatever books are out there for the asset class. Um, and it's just, it's cool. Everyone likes it. There's a lot of hype around it because no tenants, no trash, no toilet kind of thing. Although I'm sure you get some trash every once in a while. So, um, yeah, but uh, Mike, where are you located right now? Yeah, I'm in Western New York right now. I'm watching the snow fall out my window, hoping enough of it melts for our departure two days from now uh, to head down south. We're going to spend uh, four to six weeks down there until until it thaws out up here in New York. There you go. Yeah, I hear you. I'm, I'm about two hours east of you, so I've got some white stuff flying out the window as well. <laughs> so tell us, where did the journey start for you? What were you doing and how did you get into these you know, big steel boxes? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I started like many do as a, a residential investor, kind of doing single families, duplexes up to four family. Um, and that was back in 2007. At the time, I had a day job. I was a physical therapist by trade. Uh, and while I enjoyed being a therapist, I also knew that uh, the way out of the rat race was going to be through real estate. And so uh, that's where I started from 2007 to 2010. I focused exclusively on uh, small multifamily apartments. 
Um, and it went really well, uh, except it didn't get me where I wanted to go fast enough. Long story short, I, I had this plan to have a hundred units, each making a hundred bucks a month. And if that happened, I'd have 10 grand a month. And as a 29 year old kid, I thought I'd be free forever if that happened. And, and that would have been great. The challenge was after about three years of doing it, I was at 31 units. And I don't know if your listeners have ever experienced this, but uh, the way I had things planned out on paper isn't exactly how they happened uh, in the real world. And so I kind of, right? <laughs> right? I, I had to redo my math and I realized, well, instead of 100 units, I might need 150. And then I projected out the timeline and was like, I just can't stomach this for another eight or 10 years or whatever it's going to take. So while the residential multifamily was going well, it wasn't getting me where I wanted to go fast enough. And so uh, ultimately, that's when I made the pivot to self-storage. It was uh, 2011 by the time I closed on my first facility. And um, a lot of people think I'm crazy, but I quit a pretty good paying job the day I closed on my first facility. Um, which doesn't sound overly crazy until you learn that that first facility was losing two grand a month the day I took over. Um, so doing the math, essentially, it was a six figure pay cut uh, overnight. Um, and that's not necessarily what I recommend for my students or for anybody necessarily as the way to go about it. We were just in a fortunate position of uh, having I guess the, the freedom, we had been disciplined enough with our personal spending and that sort of thing where my wife and I uh, could kind of take that, that jump. And, and we did. And as they say, the rest is history. We haven't looked back and, and it's been a wild ride, man. I'm happy to share uh, any and all of it with you and your listeners today. Yeah. I mean, let's touch on that first one because a lot of people listening to the show, it, it's a lot of multifamily people, but there's a lot of people on here that really appreciate and respect the self-storage industry because there's a lot to it. It's not as just a box. It's more of a business, really. Um, talk to us about that first deal. How did you, you find it? Where was it located? And I know what it meant for you as it really opened up a lot of doors for you. Yeah. Um, so happy to unpack it for you. And, and the first thing I'll say that, you know, especially to your listeners that are more uh, focused on multifamily is storage is a great alternative strategy that essentially relies on all of the same fundamentals as multifamily investing, right? All we're looking to do is buy low, uh, rent out the property for a, a price that's greater than our cost to own and operate it. And then once we've optimized or stabilized the asset, we either keep it long-term for cash flow or we sell it off to extract the equity and move it into uh, you know, another investment. Uh, and so those similarities made the transition into storage pretty easy for me. And uh, what I learned is the differences in the world of storage are what really kind of, for me personally, uh, give it an advantage over other asset classes. And, and that was true for the first property I bought. It was only a 10,000 square foot facility. It was about an hour from my house. I had no idea what I was doing at the time. I just made it up as I went along. Um, but you know, the there's steel boxes, like you said. And so there's, there's metal walls and roofs and doors and a concrete floor. Um, and so with that comes a lower income to expense ratio, of course, especially living here in New York, we also very much appreciate the favorable treatment that we as owners get when it comes to lien laws instead of eviction laws, which essentially, you know, especially with COVID going on right now, I have a lot of residential landlords and, and multifamily owners that are struggling 
because of what I would describe as government overreach. We don't need to go down that rabbit hole, but the government is certainly making it hard and COVID is making it hard for uh, landlords to remain profitable. Um, all that being said, getting back to your, your specific question, we bought the property for $330,000 back in 2011. It was 10,000 square feet at the time and it was about 50% full. Uh, I subscribe to what I would call a low volume, high margin investing strategy where we're looking to find undervalued properties that are mismanaged in some way. Um, and of course, we're asking ourselves two questions. One, what's wrong here? And then two, we have to honestly assess whether or not we are capable of fixing whatever that problem is. And if we right, can, the problem. absolutely. Um, and so in this case, it was just a, a very generic case of owner neglect. The woman who owned it was getting older. Uh, I, because of my uh, previous employment as a physical therapist working in nursing homes, I could identify some very subtle um, and sad signs of early dementia. Um, and so she would close up shop and just leave for six, eight weeks at a time. And you won't believe me when I tell you this, but I promise you the biggest complaint I heard from uh, customers once I took over and the biggest praise I got was, well, thank you for being here to accept our payments. And I'm like, right. come on. Like this was the problem is she would just stop answering their phone and she would disappear. So, um, you know, the property had dwindled down to 40 to 50% occupancy. Um, and, and I recognized that the problem was one that I could fix. I could, I could answer the phone on a regular basis and I could maintain some office hours to make sure my customers needs were met. And I would answer the phone when it rang in order to move new people in fast forward about six, well, no closer to nine months. And we were 97% full. The property had gone up from the three thirty we bought it for up to seven fifty in value, uh, verified by a third party um, appraisal. And, and we use that to refinance extract. And then we did multiple phases of expansion. Uh, long story longer, uh, in 2018, I believe I, I sold 90% of that property. I'm still a passive 10% owner. Um, but I sold it for 1.8 million wow. after we had expanded it from 10,000 to 30,000 square feet. So, uh, it went from losing two grand a month up to generating about $140,000 a year in NOI. That is, that is phenomenal. So with this deal, how did you find it being that it was really an absentee owner for the most part is what it sounded like. How were you able to find this deal? Yeah, believe it or not, this was listed on one of the big uh, commercial databases. LoopNet is mm. um, is one of them. Another one we we often look at is Crexy, um, which I'm sure many of your listeners are familiar with. Uh, but it was listed, and it was a unique situation in that the the owner was still the owner of record, but the bank was kind of calling the shots. It was essentially a short sale. Um, but initiated by the bank, the bank said, Hey lady, you got to list this thing and sell it. Uh, we'll accept less than you owe us, but you know, they essentially didn't want to take it over. Uh, right. they didn't want that bad debt on their books. So, uh, she owed, I think close to six fifty on it. And I, I, as I said, I bought it for about half that. So it's safe to say you'd do this deal again. Oh, I sure would. That was, that was, uh, I, for many years, I believe that it was a fluke. It was absolutely a home run and I'm not going to pretend there wasn't some, some luck and happen happenstance involved. I think there always is right. As the old saying goes, luck is when preparation meets opportunity. Um, but if you had asked me back then, I would have said, yeah, this will never happen again. And, um, 
at risk of sounding immodest, I hope this doesn't come across that way, but it's happened three times since then um, on properties where we've created equal profits, comparable profits, I'll say, um, but in shorter timeframes. And so uh, while I thought it was a fluke, uh, it turns out these opportunities are, are uh, e I, I don't want to say easier to find because I believe very much that sophisticated investors don't just find deals, but just as often they're creating deals. Now that's different from forcing deals, of course, as I'm sure you and your audience knows. Um, but, but the deals are out there to be had. It just takes uh, one, a determined process for finding them. And then two, the sophistication to manipulate deal structure terms, negotiate uh, the various aspects of the deal to turn a, you know, a singular double into what I would describe as a home run. One of my favorite things in real estate is uh, I was I've been told several times that uh, great deals are created, right? They're not found. Uh, so really appreciate that insight. And to give the audience some perspective, uh, how many uh, self-storage facilities have you bought and sold over the years? Yeah, that's an excellent question. And personally, I have done five deals over the last 10 years. Okay. Uh, so again, very low, low volume, high margin. Uh, the first three we bought all generated profits, overall global profits between cash flow and equity between one and 1.5 million each. Um, we had one smaller one that it was a $200,000 property that I rescued from what I would say describe as the zombie apocalypse. Um, it's on our Facebook page tagged as the forest property. It's a pretty, uh, uh, it's a pretty dramatic overhaul. It had literally been overtaken by 30 and 40 foot uh, pine trees, the entire facility. It was a hundred percent vacant, except for a skunk that we found in one of the units. Um, <laughs> I did that deal mostly for the novelty of it all. I thought it would be cool. And, and we bought it for $10 a square foot. So, um, you know, that was a small one. We took it from about 200 to about 420 over 18 or 19 months and sold it. Um, so that one didn't fit the traditional model of of high margin per se, but still nothing to sneeze at. And, and it was a fun project. I got a really cool time-lapse video out of it. That's awesome. I love that. You know, I, I want to skip back to the first deal real quick because I'm sure a lot of people are curious on it. That's the icebreaker for you is really what it was. Um, what market was that deal in? That was just outside of Syracuse, New York. So it was, I would describe it as being right on the border of suburbia and a more rural town. Um, and Syracuse, of course, is a large city that was about, we were about 20 minutes outside of, but we were right at the intersection of two major highways in the area. Um, so we were a great location for a lot of uh, commercial customers, as well as residential that were expanding into that area. Um, and one of the reasons I sold that a couple of years back is because, again, we took it from 10,000 to 30,000 square feet. And then I could see the writing on the wall that uh, we were approaching an equilibrium of supply and demand. Our opportunity to expand was uh, not gone, but probably decelerating by a good bit at that point. And so I opted to uh, kind of extract our money and move it into a different property where we could ride that same wave, if you will. Yeah. I mean, a, a lot of times when you're looking at these commercial value add deals where you're really, what you're doing is adding value. You have those first few years, like we'll say three to five, maybe even seven years where that value's going up pretty steep. And then it really starts to plateau off. Like you were kind of describing as you've added that value, you've expanded and there's not really anywhere else to go. So you, you capitalize on that for that deal. How did you fund that? 
Excellent question. So on that one, I had I had my portfolio of residential, you know, one to four family houses. And uh, in the 18 months leading up to my purchase, I had kind of positioned three properties that we bought with cash um, and then fixed up. And then we did a blanket mortgage to refinance those three. And I extracted, you know, these are small twenty five to fifty thousand dollar properties. So we extracted about 40 grand in equity to put toward the first storage deal. I also borrowed 60,000 privately. And then I used a bank. Uh, it was an SBA 7A loan, which is a very popular uh, funding option for storage um, for the remaining 250K. Okay. And did you go to like a local credit union, a national lender? Who did you go through to get that loan? Well, all of them. The real question <laughs> is which one finally said yes, right? Yeah, right. <laughs> That was a lesson in persistence. And I didn't make it easy on myself by having to start each conversation with, by the way, I'm quitting the only source of income that I have to buy this place that's losing money. Um, so I got five no's initially. Ultimately, um, it was a national broker who connected me with a bank out of Minnesota, of all places, uh, to do the loan for. Stearns Bank was the name of the, uh, the, name of the bank. Okay. And between multifamily and self-storage, obviously they're very different, but they're both commercial assets, commercial lending. What would you tell the audience that you see as the biggest differences between lending terms through the two assets? Are they pretty similar for the most part? Yeah, no, it's a great question. I, I think um, with storage, one of the benefits you have when it comes to getting deals funded is uh, the bank's more recent understanding and appetite for storage, right? In the past, storage used to be kind of the, the ugly stepchild of the commercial right. real estate industry. Um, but banks kind of got hip to this fact that, hey, an income to expense ratio that's 30 to 35% feels like a safer bet than your typical 50 to 55% income to expense ratio that you might see in larger multifamily properties. And so, um, it took a while for them to catch on with that as they did. Um, and of course, that's because of the physical differences, because of the legal differences, um, and just the um, kind of overwhelming demand that Americans have for buying crap and then needing a place to put it, right? Um, yep. All of those things lend themselves well to the simple truth that banks love the most. And that is that a mortgage backed by a self-storage asset is less likely to default than any other mortgage-backed real estate product on the planet. And that's including the roof over my head. If I had a mortgage on it, the roof over my head, I'm more likely statistically to default on this than I am on a loan secured by my storage facility, if you can believe that. Yeah, no, I, I mean, I do. It's an income-producing asset and self-storage has seemed to be one of the biggest hedges of uh, not only inflation, but of recession as well. Um, what it, the way I always describe it to people, because I, I get asked a little bit, you know, as I do the podcast, people always ask, you know, in good times, people are going to buy lots of stuff and that stuff needs a home. And in bad times, people are going to downgrade and they have lots of stuff still that they really don't want to get rid of. And they're going to put it in a storage unit as well. So in the good, in the bad, in between, you know, you guys are going to do the best, I think, especially in times like now with the coronavirus and how multifamilies had a very difficult time with collections due to eviction moratoriums, that kind of leads me into the question of how did you guys do during the, during the coronavirus? 
Yeah, um, it's an excellent question. We've done really quite well. I was concerned primarily about collections. Um, everything you said about kind of being buffered to some extent, I'm, I would never say that storage is recession proof. I think that's uh, setting folks up to be disappointed, but it's certainly right. buffered. Um, and I kind of, aside from our asset class being buffered as a whole, I also subscribe and kind of preach a uh, very robust risk mitigation strategy that involves investing in markets, um, smaller markets, which might sound counterintuitive to a lot of people, but we're not going into Charlotte, North Carolina, where everything's blowing up, though there's uh, benefits potentially to be had there. Those markets are very susceptible to the ups and downs of the greater economy and the industry as a whole. We put ourselves into uh, secondary and tertiary markets, the way I would describe it in layman's terms is the customers that use my facilities are going to be the last folks on the planet to feel a stock market crash. It's just mm. not going to happen. Um, and so uh, that being said, as we moved into COVID, my one concern was a collections issue, right? Because uh, as people get laid off or, or aren't able to go into work, certainly I, I anticipated um, we were going to have some issues there, but uh, we really didn't at all. Um, over the last 12 or 18 months, my, my personal facilities, which I only have a couple of left, um, but I also have students who cumulatively probably have 30 to 35 properties throughout the country. I don't know of a single student who isn't at least maintaining the growth rates and the in occupancy and revenue that they had pre-COVID. They're at least maintaining of them and a vast majority of us are accelerating. Um, because again, as people get challenged economically, they might need to uh, downsize houses or uh, move into an apartment, but nobody's getting rid of Tommy's, you know, bronze plated bowling shoes or whatever it is that they have <laughs> sentimental value around. They'll go from a four family house to a two bad bedroom apartment, but they're not going to give up that stuff. Um, and, and so um, I hope that answers your question. I did want to circle back and just make sure I I started heading down that, that uh, financing route and didn't specifically answer your question about the kind of terms we're seeing. Um, mm -hmm. And I'd, I'd leave it to you to tell me how this compares to multifamily. But uh, generally speaking, in the storage world, uh, we're seeing loan to values between 80 and 90%. And wow. uh, debt coverage ratio requirements are about 1.25 which is uh, pretty aggressive as well. Uh, and rates right now are really good. I saw, I have a community of storage investors that I host, a free community where just a storage dorks hang out. Um, and somebody was doing a 90% LTV at 3.9%, uh, which, which is very strong. And I think indicative of that appetite that lenders have for this asset class. Yeah, I mean, I think going back to like, obviously focusing on the LTV right there. I mean, rate, that's pretty normal, but that loan to value, we're talking 80 to 90%. You don't see that in multifamily because like you were saying as well, the expense ratio, that 50 to possibly even 60%. Then on top of that, the debt service, you know, you're talking, you need some equity. You need some skin in the game. You need 25% down or else most commercial lenders won't even look at you for these assets. But with self-storage, like you were saying, those lower expense ratios, you can do a higher loan to value. And you got to think a bank wouldn't mind foreclosing on a self-storage facility rather than a multifamily asset, you know? <laughs> Yeah, it, it's certainly a, a bit easier, I think, from a bank standpoint, if they needed to plug in third-party management, that's that's more or less a commodity in just about every market. And so, uh, whereas a bank buying a, a multifamily or taking over a multifamily, um, 
it's kind of a crapshoot whether or not they're going to find a decent third-party management uh, in any specific market. Um, whereas with storage, we, we do everything remotely. So we, we manage our assets. Um, I live in New York. My only properties right now are in North Carolina. Uh, I'm sorry, South Carolina and Florida. Um, and that's similar for most of my students as well. It's very rare that we buy local to us. Sometimes that's where we get our, our feet wet to learn some things. Um, but beyond that, we end up going wherever the deals are. And as you know, living in New York, uh, we have this stuff called snow that's really expensive to move around every winter. And we have property taxes that are borderline insane. And so we just find the profitability on deals down south, particularly the southeast right now, uh, is stronger. And so that's where we've been playing recently. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's Go ahead. DJ. Sorry, Mike. Yep. Yep. So you touched on these markets, uh, you know, shine away from stuff in the Northeast. Uh, you really like the Southeast. What are some guidance you have for people, uh, pros and cons that you look for in the self storage, uh, both markets in general, as, as well as specific areas you're looking at? How small an area would you go into? How big an area? Um, you know, what do some of those fundamentals look like? Yeah, absolutely. And that's a phenomenal question. And first and foremost, this will make me sound like the long haired hippie that I am, but uh, I always <laughs> subscribe very tightly to the idea that self storage should serve us and allow us to create an extraordinary life rather than us serving our storage business. And so toward that end, I always tell people there are deals everywhere. So uh, where you look should depend on finding a place where the ownership of that asset is going to disrupt your life the least. So for example, uh, one, we always go to where the deals are, but there are deals all over the country. So if I had a random option of searching on the West Coast or the East Coast, well, I'm on the East Coast and I stink at jet lag. So I'm just going to shop up and down the East Coast. Now I might go over toward, you know, central time because that's not a big deal. Um, the other thing is, Here's an example. I'm actually going under contract. I believe today I signed an LOI this week uh, on my property in Florida. Uh, it's 90 minutes from Disney World. How did I end up there? Well, my wife and kids are addicted and they make me spend a month a year at Disney World. My tolerance for Mickey Mouse is not nearly their, what their tolerance is. So I said, well, if I'm going to be down there a month a year, I might as well have some sort of escape clause into right. that trip. And I can just run up 90 minutes to my facility in a very small town to answer your question, uh, about 1300 people in the town, only about 7,000 people in a five mile radius, but there's not another competitor for 10 miles. And so I have a captive audience there. Um, so there's no such thing as really, it, it would be very hard to find a market that's too small. Um, as long as that market can support my property, um, which I want to be 15 to 20,000 square feet or above, um, then, then it's probably a market I'm interested in. We always look at property first and then ascertain whether or not the market is a good one. Um, because again, we don't care if the market's growing. So um, if it's declining too fast, that's certainly going to be a red flag. But again, it's, it's more about the property than it is about the market, at least for us. Yeah, and that actually a great segue into the next question, which is uh, the properties themselves. Some of those fundamentals you look at. Uh, that's great perspective, by the way. And I, I do want to give you an opportunity to to plug your website. 
Um, so why don't you add that in? Because I, I absolutely loved when Dante sent me the bio and, and, you know, where to do our research on you and so on. I, I was really blown away. I, I thought it was great. I think you have a great story to tell. So uh, if you can hit on both of those, both the storage rebellion, uh, as well as some of those fundamentals on the properties you do look at. Yeah, absolutely. And I appreciate uh, the opportunity to share all of that stuff. As far as the properties we look at, so generally speaking, uh, uh, again, I'm looking for value add properties. So I'm not anticipating they're going to be cash flowing when I buy them, or maybe even for the first year or longer, uh, because we're not currently my current situation doesn't require the properties to cash flow. Some of my newer students might not be able to go quite as extreme on the value add side because they, they can't kind of float it for that year or two. Um, so uh, I want to just, I say that to be very clear that uh, my preferred strategy is one strategy and it's the best one, but only the best one for me. And we adjust it uh, for anyone based on their personal circumstances, their risk tolerances, the resources they have available to them and their objectives. What is their goal? Uh, but long story short, my personal goal is to double or triple the value in a property over 24 to 48 months. So we're looking for properties that have been neglected, you know, anywhere from zero to 50 or 60% full and storage facilities are all valued uh, in direct proportion to the income stream that they generate. So the profitability. So if we can take a property, buy it for 50 cents on the dollar, cause it's 50% full and ramp it up to 90% full, give or take, essentially we've doubled the value. Now, going back to my comments before about risk mitigation, um, I am very big on finding ways where it's very hard for us to get hurt, right? Warren Buffett said the first rule of investing is don't lose money, right? And so um, I'm equally not only protective of our money, but also of our lifestyle. And so here's the, here's the concept, if you will. Uh, a lot of times people will ask me, well, should I buy for cash flow or should I buy to flip it? And my tongue in cheek answer is yes, right? <laughs> I want it to be a victory regardless of disposition. If we keep it long-term or if we flip it, I want you to feel like that's a victory for you. What we're trying to avoid, and you guys have probably heard the term accidental landlord, right? Somebody who tries to flip a house the way they do on HGTV gets hit by the market or cost overruns or whatever goes wrong. And now they're a landlord when they never had intention of being a landlord. Well, that's a that's a tough spot financially and from a lifestyle standpoint. So what I tell my students is, sure, if you want to view this as primarily a flip storage project, that's great. But what happens if in two years, things don't go quite according to plan and it's kicking off 1500 bucks a month in cash flow? Are you willing to own it 600 miles from your house for 1500 bucks a month in cash flow? Maybe, maybe not. It all depends on their situation. But if instead they're buying a property that is kicking off five grand a month, well, then they'll probably, we could twist their arm into holding that long-term for the amount of work required, regardless of where it is. Um, and that brings us to the next point, uh, specifically about what kind of properties we're looking for. We need to be big enough to tap into economies of scale. When we talk about a 30 to 35% expense ratio, that's predicated on a facility probably being 12 to 15,000 square feet or bigger in most markets. And anything below that, it doesn't mean it's not a deal at all, but you want to be conscious of the fact that a small property 
will likely take about the same amount of work as a larger property. The only difference being the profits on that smaller property are likely much more modest. And so we always factor in not only ROI, return on investment, but also return on energy, return on time, return on anxiety, whatever resources or bandwidth this property is going to extract out of you as a person, we want to calculate both the costs and benefits there. Um, so hopefully that answered your question. I know the second part was where folks can find us. And uh, uh, first place to go is, is uh, a community that I host. It can be found at storagerebels.com. And there's no cost to join. You could come hang out with a bunch of storage dorks. We talk about this lifestyle stuff. Um, I would describe it as the Facebook or the bigger pockets of self-storage. Um, it, it, it's got a news feed. It's got uh, hours upon hours of content that we share for free with people just to help them explore whether or not storage is a good avenue or asset class for them to explore. Um, and of course, there's other options if they decide they want to dive deeper. Those are there as well. Um, I think DJ, you were referring to my, maybe my company website, thestoragerebellion.com. If you want to find out what makes this hippie tick, then uh, that might be a cool place <laughs> to check out. Um, it's definitely a cool place. Uh, and I love the, uh, the work life balance message. Um, certainly I think anybody or a lot of people that get into real estate, that's what they talk about, uh, right? Is uh, that freedom, that freedom to spend time with the family. You've struck that. Uh, so I think it's awesome and uh, people should definitely check it out because uh, you certainly are somebody who has achieved that. And uh, I think there's some great lessons that we can take from that. Um, so the, the next thing I have for you is uh, these properties as you get into them now, once you or your students get a hold of them, uh, guidance on improvements, how is technology affecting the industry? And what are you doing to make these places cash flow and be more profitable? Yeah, excellent question. And, and you know, thinking back to that first property where I said we took it from 40 or 50% full to 97% over six or nine months, uh, everyone would ask, like, how'd you do it? And I so wanted to have that, like, I killed a tiger with my bare hands story. Uh, but the simple truth is, it's, it's simple, right? I answered the phone and I treated customers the way that I would want to be treated, um, and that's all it took. Of course, uh, in the storage world, we also need to do some marketing. So our goal isn't to convince people they need storage, but uh, we use the internet and technology to be essentially the first place people find once they decide they have a need for storage. A lot of SEO, uh, pay-per-click stuff on Google and, and that sort of thing, all relatively easy to automate. Uh, takes a little bit of work up front to get those running. Um, so by and large, our improvements at these properties are going to be operational in nature. Um, it's going to be marketing stuff. It's going to be also, uh, we use a uh, cloud-based management software that serves as our management software, but also as an interface for our customers where they can get right online to rent, move into, move out of, uh, electronically sign rental agreements, make payments, all sorts of things they can do right online without ever having to talk to us. Uh, if they prefer to talk to somebody, we'll also roll out a call center that is not a glorified answering service. It's actually embedded in the back end of our management software so that uh, they can call and have the person on the phone actually service them rather than forwarding a lead to me, the owner who doesn't want to be involved in the day-to-day -day operations at all. Defeats the whole purpose of the business kind of, right? <laughs> exactly. Exactly. And then we also have um, a remote 
uh, management strategy that involves automated access to our facility. So if you've paid, the software knows you've paid and it tells the gate to open and close based on your individual code that you enter. If you fall behind on rent as our customer, uh, the gate just kind of beeps at you. And that's your reminder to call us, you get paid up and then your, re your access is restored. Um, as far as physical improvements go, aside from that one example that I talked about in the forest where we reclaim the property, uh, the vast majority of the time, our ideal property is going to be one where the operational overhaul makes up 80 to 85% of our overall improvements. And then we'll do a little lipstick, 10 to 15%, maybe a new gate operator, um, you know, one that integrates with our software, maybe a coat of paint if needed, um, cleaning up. Certainly, a lot of times we're buying these properties where they're 50% physically full, but 80, or I'm sorry, 50% financially full, meaning they're performing half of what they could from a financial standpoint, but they might be 70 or 80 or 90% physically full. And so we have to go in and kind of do what I call a massive operational overhaul or a, uh, like the property we bought in Florida. I spent four days there, a couple dumpsters, you know, an army of Craigslist labor, and we just processed through. And four days later, I left with a property that had inventory online and ready to rent. Um, and again, that one, three or four months later, we were just, we were busting at the seams full. Well, so I, I kind of have a story that's going to translate into a question. that's kind of going to touch on what you had. So, you know, like I said, DJ and I, we do multifamily, but a lead came across my desk one day of a local storage facility. I was like, oh, I love storage. always wanted to get into it, you know, did some research on it. It makes sense. So, you know, went to go see it it was, I believe, 35% occupied and it was only five years old. So it was very mismanaged. The storefront, instead of having, you know, boxes or supplies for sale or even more climate-controlled units, the gentleman had a fertilizer sale company out of the storefront and in exchange for rent, they would run the facility. And it was just a bunch of, okay, you plow the facility, we'll give you a bay for free. You, mo you know what I mean? And so it was very mismanaged. So, you know, we saw an opportunity there to purchase something that was, mismanaged by a current pro, uh, current not pro forma and build it into something that would make sense. Uh, you know, got very excited about it. It was a smaller facility. It was only about 19,000 square feet. And the issue we struggled with was the management side of things. We, we see, you know, a lot in the self-storage area locally that it's the man front desk. You know, they've got someone there to answer phones, get you checked in, sell you boxes, sell you tape, whatever it is, a lock. And as we ran through our pro forma of what we plan to do with the property, the issue we kept running into is the returns weren't there because we had to pay a worker to be there full time. It wasn't going to be our job that defeats the purpose of the asset. Um, so we started looking into automated, uh, the ATM kind of machine style, the kiosk, excuse me, where it spits out the lock, the lease agreement, everything. And that made more sense. So is that what you're describing to me as what you're doing for automated? You don't have someone manning the front desk. You have this basically fully automated system with the call center in the back end there. That's correct. We, we run completely unmanned facilities. I do personally, some of my students might maintain on larger facilities and markets that are predominantly manned operations. They might do some, uh, you know, very limited office hours, eight to 12 office hours a week, just more out of anxiety from being so right. different than all of the other folks in town. Uh, we don't actually use kiosks. Uh, I think they're great. Uh, but I also think they are uh, on the brink of being functionally obsolete. 
the reason being one, they cost anywhere from eight to 20 grand and then three to $800 a month to maintain, which is certainly cheaper than an employee, but it's a whole lot more expensive than the system we use because I know Dante and DJ, you both have a smartphone within reach of you. I'm almost willing to guarantee that. And that to me is your kiosk. So if you jumped on, for example, dylanstoragecenter.com right now, you would see our interface and that's the same thing as a kiosk. It's just you pay the bill and you carry it with you wherever you go. So it takes that expense off of me as the owner um, and you already have it. And so uh, that's what we're doing. I will tell you your, your hesitation about going unmanned is resonates with me very strongly. I wish I could say I'm a genius and I just saw this unmanned thing happening. And that's why I created the system I created. But the truth is uh, necessity breeds competence, right? And this came out of necessity. Long story short, when I bought that first property in Syracuse, I went there six hours a day, five days a week, um, because I assumed that's what you had to do. And that was better than going to be a physical therapist. At least I was forging my own path through the world. And right, right. Uh, by the way, if you buy a facility, if you quit your job and buy a facility losing two grand, whether you need to or not, you go there every day because your wife expects it. Right. And so <laughs> I went there every day for a year and a half. And what I realized very quickly was I don't need to be here that long. So my son was, uh, um, my son was born. And during that time I transitioned to an employee and I said, well, she doesn't need to be here 30 hours a week. She'll be here 16 hours a week, four hours a day, four days a week. And then I also knew she wasn't well, what happened is I started building a house like physically with my own hands, 10 hours a day, six days a week. Uh, my two-year-old, my eight-month pregnant wife and our dog were living in my in-laws basements while I built this house because we had to sell our other house so I could afford to build this one. Long story short, my manager broke her ankle and required three surgeries during that time. Oh. So I was forced, I couldn't go there every day and move people in. And she certainly wasn't available to do it anymore. So I was forced to find a solution. And that's where this remote management strategy, it was very archaic in those days. Um, I was using, you know, pcanywhere.com and I was emailing signed paperwork back and forth. And it was, it was very cumbersome. But what it taught me was we don't need somebody involved in all of this. We can deploy the technology and service our customers just as well, if not better than anybody else who has a manned office just by setting these systems up. And that's what we've done. And it continues to evolve even to this day. I, I just, I love the, uh, the perseverance. I, I think people that come from other occupations and drive this path, uh, that's, it's, you know, Boy, we've got lessons on marriage. We got lessons on uh, work-life balance and, and perseverance. So no extra charge to the audience. It's great stuff. Um, the uh, self-storage market as a whole, the big players, the U-Hauls of the world, can you just kind of give us a, a global perspective? How big are they? How much of the market share do the, do the uh, national guys own versus some of the bigger regional players? and how much Ma and Pa stuff is still out there? Yeah, that's an excellent question. And consolidation, where the big players are kind of eating a little bit more of the market share as time goes by, is definitely a thing in our industry. Um, I don't know exact numbers, but I, I don't think I'm too far off if I estimate that the REITs, the big five, the ones that are publicly traded, um, you know, Extra Space, Cube Smart, U-Haul, as you mentioned, among some others, 
own about 15 to 18% of the overall market. There's six, roughly 65,000 properties uh, throughout the country. And so while consolidation is a real thing, it's also less than 20% of the overall uh, stock in the country. And so um, the unsophisticated mom and pop owners, the number of properties that are out there that, that we would look to as our potential deals far outnumber uh, the ones that, that, you know, that are already within the uh, grasp of the big guys. I don't, I, I can't answer your question about regional players. I certainly know that came into my decision to ultimately sell that Syracuse facility is there's a big regional player that was buying up more and more market share. And they, they bring nuances that we need to understand as smaller operators. It's not that we can't compete against them, but we need to know what we're up against. Um, And what I, what I always tell people is the industry as a whole, wherever we are right now, storage is, is absolutely a seller's market. Um, You know, it's, it's a little bit sexy and it's trending and people are paying more than maybe I might recommend Uh, that being said. uh, So, so, the follow-up question to that commentary is often, did I miss the boat, Mike? Can I still do this? And my take-home message is always that savvy investors don't allow a market. And this isn't just true of storage. This would be true of any asset class. Savvy investors don't allow the market to dictate if they invest, but they allow the market and where we are in the cycle to color how we invest. So we might be adjusting our strategies depending on where we are in the storage cycle, where we are in the economic cycle, uh, but we're not going to let that determine if we invest. Yeah, no, that's definitely a good, good, good word. Uh, like what you had to say there, and to kind of touch up on my story at the end there, what happened with that facility was, you know, Radius Plus, we had access to that. It kind of showed us what was going on development wise. And we saw across the street, 100,000 square feet of cell storage being built with the other 60,000 a mile down the street so we kind of adjust our offer to that and someone else that's willing to pay for a lower return, they could be the winner on that bad boy. <laughs> yeah, no. And, and you bring up a great point. The, uh, uh, there is a barrier to entry to storage. Um, and I, I believe the perceived barrier to entry is probably higher than it actually is. Uh, but that being said, uh, we need to be very cognizant of uh, what we would call phantom supply right? So it's supply that doesn't yet exist, but it's going to whether we like it or not. Um, And that's exactly what you're referring to there. Exactly. You just have to make those smart calculated decisions versus just getting emotionally tied to the deal and be like, I want a bunch of these boxes for myself, you know? Absolutely. Um, And and that's why we love the smaller markets. Cause I can tell you the property I own down in Florida. uh, I don't know if you guys are familiar with the area specifically, it's called meth country, Florida. Uh, So there there's not a big player moving in to develop anything in that town. Uh, We've got a captive market. um, And the only reason I'm selling that property right now is because uh, I just finished a $1.2 million cash construction project down in South Carolina. And as the Florida property sits today, it's kind of at its quote unquote peak. Um, except if you expand into the two acres of land that's there. I just don't have an appetite to build right now. I've got three kids under the age of seven. I just did a a year long major anxiety inducing construction project. And so from a lifestyle standpoint, it makes sense to sell that one. Not to mention if you look at, you know, what I would suggest are likely changes in the 
capital gains rate taxes that that we're all going to be subjected to over the next call it four years arbitrarily. Um, right. We're we much rather sell when we're at a twenty percent gain rate than thirty or forty or whatever it might go to. Of course, most definitely. It, DJ, did you have any other questions for Mike before we head into the next section of the show? No, I'm actually, uh, well, I could probably talk to him for about another two days, but yeah, uh, right. <laughs> for, the, for the sake of the podcast, uh, I think I'm pretty good. I think we've hit on uh, certainly some of the key aspects uh, of that, that storage facility market, um, you know, some of the specific items that Mike looks for uh, as far as how they're evaluating deals and some of those fundamentals. And it's just, it, it's great insight uh, into a really, really interesting uh, aspect of real estate. Awesome. Yeah, no, I like it. Let's head over to the next section of the show called the Curious Cues. Mike, we're going to throw some questions at you that we ask every guest on the show and uh, let's get your answer on them. First question is favorite podcast you enjoy listening to? Ah, it changes often. Uh, there are two right now. I, I love Hal Elrod's Miracle Morning. Uh, he's actually a friend of mine and a great guy. So uh, I've been binge listening to that for the last couple weeks. Um, also, uh, maybe lesser known to, to the world at large is a guy by the name of Andrew Huberman. Uh, he is a neuroscientist at Stanford, and he talks all about the neurochemistry of high achievers. And I'm just fascinated by that stuff. It's, you know, dopamine, serotonin, oxytocin, all these chemicals, um, what we can do throughout the course of a day to hack uh, basically our physiology to allow us to perform at the highest levels. We've all met people where it seems like they have 48 hours in a day instead of 24. We know they have the same amount of hours. They just get twice as much done. And I believe the um, the reason for that lies in this neurochemistry stuff. So I've been all over it. His, his podcast is called the Huberman lab and he's all over Instagram as well. That was pretty interesting. I'll check that out. Favorite book you enjoy reading? Uh, oh, there's a lot of them. Um, the one I just finished is called who not how, uh, by, um, uh, Dan Sullivan and, oh, I'm going to Ben Hardy, Dr. Ben Hardy. Um, and essentially it, it just, uh, outlines the importance and some, some underlying fundamentals of, again, high, high achievers uh, who, instead of asking the question, how can I get this done? Because then they are always the, the self-imposed governor on their productivity. Instead of asking, how should I do this? It's who can do this for me. And then empowering people around you to basically delegate to um, and do it in a way where you're not using or manipulating them or making them into gophers, but allowing them an opportunity to tap into their own personal zone of genius so that you can spend your time in your personal zone of genius. And thereby uh, the collaboration creates a synergistic effect and allows greater results than would otherwise be possible if you kind of maintain that lone wolf mentality that I subscribe to for so long. Yeah, no, that's good. I'll have to check that one out. Biggest hurdle in real estate you've had to overcome. You know, I think that's an excellent question. And I think for me personally, um, if I'm going to boil it down, it's one word and it's fear or insecurity, right? I, um, uh, I think all of us can uh, have this fear of the unknown. And I'm also very analytical. So if given the choice, I want to know steps A through Z before I take step A. Uh, but that's just not realistic, especially in the world of uh, real estate investing. And so um, 
I think overcoming that need for certainty and, and kind of leaning forward, stepping out in faith that things will work out one way or another uh, has probably been the biggest challenge for me over the years. Yeah, no, I definitely hear you on that. In your free time, what is your favorite non-real estate related hobby? I have to put non-real estate related because everyone's like, oh, I just like doing real estate, you know? <laughs> yeah, well, I, I might be the odd bird in that world. I, uh, I, I keep storage very securely in its position as a means to an end, not the end in of itself. Um, my wife and three kids and I spend about six months on the road. Uh, every year we have a truck and a camper that we drive around the country, um, largely to state and national parks and, and we hike as a family. Uh, my son did his first two, uh, three high peaks this past summer. Um, so these are peaks up here in the Adirondacks in New York. Um, he's only seven, he's got three done and my five-year-old uh, walked one herself. And so I'm, I'm proud of their ability uh, to endure physical discomfort for uh, what I hope they will someday appreciate as real benefits. They'll be uh, 46ers before you know it, right? That's the idea. Uh, my yep. wife and I started that when we were, uh, before we had kids and then it stopped when we had kids. And well, we <laughs> We wanted to, to uh, live vicariously through them. So we're going to try to do it as a family of five. I love that. And isn't it amazing that real estate has given you the opportunity to do that? Because without real estate, you wouldn't be able to go pack up the family, throw them in the camper for six months at a time and just enjoy each other, enjoy God's creation of this earth and just really enjoy life. I think that's amazing. So I, you know, if people can take away one thing from this episode, it's like, look what real estate can open up doors for you as, you know. Absolutely. Last question here, uh, newbie advice. So what advice would you give to someone that's looking to get started with real estate? Sure. And this, this goes along with what you just said, Dante, but I think, uh, and it might sound a little counterintuitive, but I believe that every new investor should stop whatever they're doing if they haven't already done so and design their ideal life. If time and money were no object, how would they spend their days? Another way to look at it is uh, what I believe, and this might sound a little morbid, but I believe that my ideal life is the life that changes the least if heaven forbid I was told tomorrow that I only have three or six months to live or whatever. I know I'm living my ideal life if things don't change. Now, the truth is for most of us, if we got that news, we would change the way we're spending our time and money pretty quickly. Um, and so uh, all that to say, if somebody takes the time to design their ideal life, then they can design a business that supports that life, which is completely opposite to how most investors, business owners, Americans in general, uh, kind of work through this world. Generally speaking, we're taught, you know, go to school, get good job or get good grades, get a good enough job, and then work for 40 years in hopes someday you can buy back your freedom. Or maybe if you're really successful, you can sneak out of work 30 minutes early to squeeze in Timmy's t-ball game. Uh, but the truth is that's putting business at the forefront and we're sneaking life in to whatever time's left over. I believe our greatest fulfillment and best life comes if we design and start living our ideal life, create a business that we can sneak in in whatever time's left over after we're done living. Yeah, no, that's, that's good. It's a good word. Um, Mike, I know we kind of did the plug earlier, but please right again, where can people connect with you, uh, find out more about you, join your community, or even just chat with you? Yeah, best place is probably storagerebels.com. They can register for a free account. There's no cost. And in there, we've got, I don't know, 1,300 members. Um, There's a direct message feature in there where people can shoot me a message and say hello. Um, We we do 
tons of crowdsourcing of uh, answers and questions and collaborations, partnerships forming re- left and right. One of the one of the things that I I think is very common, especially as people get into storage, is this feeling of wow, this is a giant elephant, right? And how do you eat a giant elephant? One bite at a time, of course, as the cliche goes. So we break it down step by step. There's a seven-day workshop people can uh, participate in, again, for free there, just to get an overview of the industry, pretty detailed overview, if you will. Um, But more than that, it's an opportunity to forge relationships with people. Um, We have collaborations that are happening, people that have the money, but can't find deals or, and they're teaming up with people that can find deals, but don't maybe don't have the money or uh, aren't willing to do the sweat equity. And, and I believe as Zig Ziglar said, right. uh, You can have all the success you want in the world if you're willing to help other people succeed. Um, And that's what I built this platform to achieve was to help other people succeed. Yeah, no, I love it. That is so good. Uh, Mike, just want to thank you for your time this afternoon. Thank you so much for coming on the show and sharing your knowledge with us. Uh, DJ, thanks for coming in and being my co-host for the show. I appreciate that. You're wingman. Well. Exactly. <laughs> I, I love it. Um, awesome. So Mike, DJ, thank you again, guys. And we'll be talking to you soon. Thank you, guys. Thanks for listening. We hope you were able to take some value away from today's episode. For more information or to connect with Dante, visit victorycapgroup.com. See you next week.